Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. The Houseman XP Podcast Network is taking you on the journey. Your host, Master Trainer Heath Hyatt, will combine his decades of experience as a houndsman and as a professional trainer that will light the path forward and make our packs lighter on this lifelong journey to become better hunters and houndsmen. There are no shortcuts, so lace up those boots and grab a dog leash. The journey begins now. Hey guys, the journey on Houndsman XP is teamed up with Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform that was made for hunters by hunters. If you guys and gals have listened to any of the other podcasts that I've been on, you know what a huge outdoor enthusiast I am. I love being in the woods with my hounds. There's nothing more exciting than hearing the thunder of a spring gobbler. I love fishing for trout in the brooks and the streams, and I love being on the river chasing that ever-elusive fish of a thousand casts, the muskie. Go Wild is the place that I can post my trophies, hunts, and memories without being censored. But Go Wild is so much more than that. It's a place to share your stories, sharpen your skills, hone your tactics, get gear reviews, and shop for anything outdoors. When you make a purchase from the Go Wild store, everything is free shipping. Anything that you purchase anywhere in the country, no matter how big, free shipping. So go down to the show notes, click on the Go Wild link at the bottom, and get signed up today. And let's go wild. On today's journey, we are headed back up to Fredericksburg, Virginia, to finish our conversation with Ariel and... We just barely touch. We didn't even scratch the surface the last time. And, you know, Ariel has such an array of expertise, experience. Um, you know, we were just talking and, you know, she's been in the military world. She's been in the sport dog world. She's come back and trained dogs in the police field with, with Jerry and Mike. She's set through numerous uh, seminars and training sessions and she's even, you know, went to the companion field, you know, with the pets. So she has got about all of our bases covered. And now she's in the hound world and brings a wealth of knowledge and experience with her into the field that all of our listeners love. I mean, that's what drives us is being with the hounds. And it doesn't matter whether it's a coon hound or a bear hound or a lion hound or a fox hound, coyote, you know, we all do the same things we all enjoy our dogs and we use our dogs to you know to to capture the game or the quarry that we're after 
So today, I think Arian and I are going to break down to two topics. Um, there is a lot more that we would love to discuss. But today, just to simplify things down, um, I'm going to... I'm going to ask her just a few questions. And remember, guys, she's got a degree in, in biology and a minor in neuroscience. And neuroscience kind of breaks down to the olfactory system, which in the police world, that talks about, you know, that's how the nose works. So we're going to dig a little deeper into that and talk about some scientific stuff and, you know, what drives the dog, what, you know, how to stimulate the dog. Um, we're, we're going to, we're going to, that's going to be the second half. So, uh, Ariel, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back again. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation from last time. I, I'm telling you, I mean, it's um, it's a pleasure. Like I said, I know that you and I have talked many, many times. And, you know, just to, to have your expertise. And like you said on the last podcast, you know, we, we both speak the same language um, when it comes to the the working police sport dog side of it. And being able to have those conversations with somebody that that can speak that language um, is is invaluable to me. Um, even though I know you're getting started, I guarantee you you're you're leaps and bounds ahead of some of us um, with your experience. Um, so to let's let's just break it down. I want to. I know we kind of left off last time um, with with a few things. With your experience, Ariel, and and we can we can we can talk about the the actual training of the hound itself. What what are some things that you have taken from your experience in all four of those fields? And you have what are some things that you have brought over to the hound world? Okay. Um, well, you know, we had touched upon it, I think, at the very end of our conversation last time. But um, starting, I guess, from the simplest thing with puppies, um, just how to raise a, a nice dog to, to live with. Um, my dogs, I don't I don't have a, a big piece of property in the country. So my dogs spend a lot of the time um, in crates in the house or even when they're in the yard. Um, you know, they're, we're in close proximity to the neighbors. So, um, and I, I take them for walks. I, I want to have a dog that's reasonably well behaved. Um, so just having the obedience background has helped me to kind of know that, that line between having a dog that is a working dog, their, their purpose in being in my life is to, to work and go out and hunt. So I don't want to put so much control on them that it inhibits them. But I want to be able to have enough control that I can lead them through the woods. They're not dragging me down the trails and, and knocking me down. Um, and I, I want to have a dog that will come back to me. Um, you know, that's, that's one of the frustrations I've, I've felt pretty early on in my experience with hunting dogs is when you have a dog out there that is not ready to come back. And, you know, you wind up wasting a lot of time trying to chase that dog down. So one of the earliest things I do with my puppies is to teach them to come back to both my voice, uh, you know, verbal recall when I call their name or, you know, give them some sort of verbal signal from me, um, or the tone on the collar. So, um, as long as they under they know where I am in proximity to their location in the woods, 
um, I can use the tone and I don't have to worry about yelling loud enough for them to hear. They understand tone means come back and find me. Um, and I start that very young. Um, beyond that, uh, my detection background and my, my tracking background, I've, I've trained human tracking dogs. Um, I've been able to incorporate my knowledge of that um, into training the, the hounds to hunt game. Um, you know, it, as we discussed last time, it's, it's not a one for one uh, transfer of knowledge. I, I can't do things exactly the same, but I do think having that knowledge base has allowed me to figure things out probably a little bit more, more quickly than I would have had I not had that knowledge. Um, and, you know, just the, the behavior between the dogs, um, you know, kind of managing their interactions and making sure we have a good pack dynamic, um, not allowing them to be reactive um, in situations that it's inappropriate. So that understanding of general dog behavior, I think is just something that is always going to come in handy um, when you're working with dogs, being able to read their body language and, and know what they're gonna do before they do it so you can prevent them from learning bad habits. Yeah, I, and I couldn't agree more with the, the the obedience side. And I know that some of the podcasts I've been on, you know, I talk about a dog being able to handle. And, you know, one of the things when I first got into canine, of course, now back way back when, it was a compulsion, compulsion, compulsion. And just the demeanor of the dogs from back in the early 2000s to now, um, everything's in their face and their eyes and their ears. Ears are laid back eyes are a little bit bigger because you're forcing them to do something. But I'll, I was always told that if you put obedience on them, you break their spirit. You break their spirit. And I don't believe that. I mean, then I didn't know any better. That's what I was being told. That's what was being told to me continuously, and that's what I regurgitated because that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do you feel about how, to, how about it? Because I hear a lot of guys um, – in, in the hound world, they talk about that. They talk about, you know, they mm -hmm. don't they don't want to they don't want to diminish their drive. They don't want to diminish their drive, and they're not saying those exact yeah. words. Those are my words, but yeah. Um. So I certainly mean this with the utmost respect to all the hunters out there. Um. They know a great deal more about hunting hounds than I do, but I do notice that a lot of times, um, that opinion and that perspective comes from people who um, use obedience to suppress behavior and they they want they use a lot of pressure and they um, you know to, to put a handle on the dog they um, they use a lot of compulsion like like you mentioned and this is prevalent in across all dog venues it's not just hunting mm -hmm. um, but you know speaking to why that opinion may persist um, Yes, if you if you take a young dog and you're constantly telling them no and um, making them uncomfortable for for being happy and excited and you know they get too excited and you correct them, um, you are going to suppress that dog's drive and make them um, you're going to inhibit them and make them afraid to um, be too independent potentially or or to act too excited about something. So um, when I'm teaching a young dog obedience, I have certain things that I don't accept. Um, you know, I don't want a dog that's jumping all over me. So, mm -hmm. um, I will 
punish that behavior and not think anything of it. You know, if you're jumping on me, if you're mouthing me too hard, if you're doing things that are dangerous or um, to me or to another dog or, you know, just making making it difficult to interact with you, I will punish that. But when it comes to teaching the dog to come back to me or to walk on a leash, um, I can do that by creating positive associations with with things. Um, you know, if, if you stay near me, you get good things. If you come back to me when you hear this noise or when I call your name, um, you, you get a, a handful of kibble or you get a, a treat or you know, I, I rub you on the head. W- whatever motivates that dog is what I use. Um, so obedience does not always have to be inhibitive and does not always have to suppress the dog's drive. Um, you just have to be careful how you use it. Um, and, you know, you have to think about cause and effect. If the dog runs away from you and you yell at them and then when you get them back to you, you, you know, you beat them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that dog's not going to want to come back to you and they are going to be inhibited. They're going to be, when they're near you, they're going to be nervous. So um, I want to create positive associations. And then, you know, if the dog does something that I dislike, I will punish it fairly, um, keeping in mind the dog's age and maturity level and how sensitive they are. Yeah. I mean, yes. And that, can you can you give it? Well, you did give us a quick example. I mean, and you said the same thing that I say all the time. Most of the time, my motivator is the food, especially mm-hmm. for a hound and a younger dog. They're most of the time that the the hound, especially the food, works wonderfully. And mm-hmm. you know, I've learned so many lessons with patience and doing things that way, and not and not using the compulsion. And like I said, I've, I'm guilty. I've chased dogs around my yard and the neighborhood and around the woods. And when I got my hands on them, I give them a good what for. And then, you know, <laughs> next time I tried to catch them, they was like, uh-uh. You know, I remember last <laughs> time, this was not a good thing. So, yeah, I'm and I'm with you. And, and it's still hard. Like, you know, when you're trying to grab a dog and get to another location or, you know, pick you pick a dog up and, and get out of a, a dangerous situation, road crossing or whatever, sometimes our our emotions, our tempers, however mm-hmm. you want to put it, do get a hold of us. And I have to remind myself a lot that it's, you know, the dog, the dog is not the problem. Most of the time it's me. Oh, I mean, none of us are perfect. And, you know, like you said, it's hard, especially, you know, when a lot of times you, you've got a handful of hounds, it's not just one or two dogs at a time. Um, you've got five or six and, you know, you've got one that doesn't want to get in the box and you've got another one that doesn't want to come to you. And, and like you said, you're trying to load up dogs and, and get them down the road. Sometimes they're not going to have the best experience. Um, so I try and counteract that by, OK, you know, if the dog's a little nervous about getting in the box, let me feed him in there for mm-hmm. a few days yeah. or a week. Um, let me you know, let me practice having him jump up and jump down. My, my blue dogs hated to load up into the crate when I first got them. And there was definitely times where I'm in a rush and I'm frustrated and I'm like, I'm just going to pick you up and throw you in there. But I also spent a lot of time rewarding them for going in, teaching them to wait, rewarding them for coming out when I tell them to. So now they both load up on their own and they, they wait when I open the door. But, you know, I had to remember that. I'm not always going to be perfect, especially in the heat of the moment. So <laughs> let me let me take opportunities when things are calm and I'm at home to practice the behaviors that I'm going to need when I'm out in the, the field, quote unquote. Yeah, and I do that a lot in the off season, like you just said, when mm-hmm. it's not so stressful and the 
everything I, I do. And I do start, I feed my young dogs. Um, I feed them in, in, on the tailgate and then I move them to the back of the truck and then I put my dog box on and I leave the dog box open and then I feed them inside the dog box. And, you know, then I, you know, and it doesn't really take that long. Maybe, maybe the whole process is two weeks, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and it saves a lot of trouble. And once they, once they think there's food in the back of that truck, they usually don't have no problem knocking the back out of the box. That's for sure. Yep. And, you know, it's nice because those, those behaviors persist. So even if you don't practice it for a while, they, they're hopeful. They're like, oh, I'll jump up here and they yes. don't get a treat this time. Yeah. The, the, the word hope in dog training is huge. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, you know, I'm with you. And you, you talked about toning. And I know that there's probably a lot of people talk about this. So when mm-hmm. you start your puppies with the tone, give me a real quick rundown of that process. When you, sure, I would what lo- do you associate I would love to talk with, about it. Yeah, how do you associate the tone with the comeback? Let's go over that. Sure. Um, I've actually been trying to make some videos of this. Um, so what I first do, um, because, you know, putting the collar on the dog and pressing the tone button can be scary for some dogs. If they don't know where that noise is coming from, they've never heard it before, it can be unsettling. So the first couple times they hear it maybe the first couple sessions I just hold the collar in my hand and do um, I just create a positive association I'm doing you know Pavlovian conditioning I don't care what the dog does I beep the tone on the collar feed him some food beep the tone on the collar feed him some food okay and now so is, the, trying, is the collar on the dog or in your hand nope it's in my hand at okay this point. all right um, it's off the dog you know, I, yep I just want that that first that first instance of them hearing that noise um, you know, a lot of times when you put the collar on the dog, they wind up turning around and trying to look and see where it's coming from. So, um, yeah. you know, to, to, to avoid that confusion, I just hold it in my hand. And, and if I have a dog that I think is a little nervous, I'll even kind of hold it behind my back. But all I want to do is create that, that temporal association where they hear the noise and they get the food and they start to think to themselves, oh, that, that noise means food is coming. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, the, the old can opener, you know, the dog hears the can opener, the, the rustling of the bag of treats, and they come running because they know what that means. Yep. I want that tone to, to have that same value to them. Like, oh, tone equals food. Yep. Um, once I'm getting, you know, I, I'm not getting any kind of startle or nervous response, then I'll put the collar on the dog. Um, I keep a leash on them at this point because I, I don't I don't want there to be a what if I don't want to hit the tone and the dog goes running the other direction and gets scared and runs under the porch or you know something crazy I want to be able to control the variables like we talked about last time I like to control so put a leash on the dog press tone kind of gently reel the dog towards me with the leash give them food and it also helps if you're kind of backing away from them because they naturally want to follow you so that prey yeah yep tone i kind of back up quickly and make myself look exciting give them food tone back up food tone food so now you know i'm kind of reeling them into me backing up teaching them you have to move towards me in order to get what you want and then just gradually i you know i have leashes of different lengths um and once i see it kind of starting to click where before i even start reeling them in they're moving towards me then i stop helping them so much i won't back up I won't make myself as exciting. I won't pull on the leash as much. I wait for the dog to give me the effort. So they hear tone, 
they make the effort to move towards me. And as they're doing that, I'll say, good dog. I'll clap my hands. I want them to understand like, Hey, you're making the right choice here. You heard the tone. You're coming to me before they even get to me. I can celebrate their good choices. And then when they get to me, they get the food. And then that just transitions into um, taking them into environments that are more distracting, having them around the other dogs, um, taking the leash off eventually. Um, I usually go from that, like the leash to my backyard where they can't totally run away, um, but there's no leash attached to them. And I mean, it, it goes really quickly, um, mm-hmm. you know, within a couple, within a couple days, if not, you know, a couple sessions, the dog is like, Ooh, that noise means I get food. And I maintain that, you know, people always say like, well, when, when, I, when can I stop rewarding my dog? Well, you know, you go to work and you expect your paycheck every two weeks. So, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, you know, I, I practice this. I have some treats in my pocket when I go out in the yard and, or when I'm, you know, we're out on the trails and they're not really hunting anything just to remind them, like, you know, they're, there's the chance, again, the hope um, that there's something good waiting for you when you come back. And if I don't have treats, I, I praise them and let them know they're good dogs for coming back to me. Yeah, the verbal praise is is important for a dog, and it does work. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not made, it's not the highest um, reward system, but it does work. And most, some, you know, most dogs are tactile too. I mean, they they like you to pet them and and love on them and. Um, if anybody's ever hunted with me or been in my truck, in my my back doors, in my pockets of my back doors on both sides, I have small bags of the food that I do my my stuff with. It's and it's really big kibble, and I even do that when I'm out in the woods if I can think about it. Mm-hmm. Like if my dogs are coming and they've been out for a while, I. I, I reach down there and I get me a handful of it. And when they get back to me, boom, they get it. So I'm trying to reinforce that just like what you said. I try to reinforce it as much as I can. Yep. And so. I know, you know, I've had people say like, well, aren't you worried? They're not going to want to go hunt because you have food. I'm like, you know, if I've got a dog that now is puppies, yeah, food is more important. But if I've got, you know, a 10 month old, a year old dog that doesn't want to go hunt because I've got a couple kibbles, then you know, maybe that's not the right dog for the job. Generally the, the prey and the, the hunt or the, the work is, and the reward of the work is more desirable than, than what I'm giving them for coming back to me. But, um, I can still give them some tangible reward. Yeah. I don't, you know, I just, I mean, if a hound's programmed right, that's not, I mean, that's not even a op, that's not even a, concern like i wouldn't even yeah. cross my mind i mean you've never tried it's, to hold it's never you've, been you've never tried to hold a dog back trying to get out of the box and off the tailgate because they smelt a hot yeah. bear <laughs> yeah i i haven't run into it being an issue yet so no absolutely not well good i mean that's that's a good starter and um like i said you actually do it just a little bit different than i do um so good i mean i learned i learned something right there so <clears throat> with your biology degree and with your extensive knowledge in the detection world and the tracking, I want to flip over to the the neuroscience, the olfactory system, which is the um, the system that the dog uses to process odor, scent. It runs through his nose, and I mean, if you guys could, if I could show you a picture of what mm-hmm. this looks like with all the nerve endings and all the the stuff in the dog's nose, I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. And one of the things that I 
when I teach one of, when I teach my detection classes, well, even, even the tracking classes, that I've got a small video and it's kind of like a cartoon, but it it shows a picture of that the dog sees the world through his nose, and yes, they do use their eyes, but their nose is their that is their their point. That's where they get most of their information. They do see, they do hear, but that's where they probably process the majority of their information. Is that an accurate statement, Ariel? Yep. Is it the TED Talk video with the the dog kind of seeing the flowers? Yes, and the, he go yep. and they show him walking down the sidewalk and he's sniffing on the the fire yep. hydrant. And this dog's telling a story. Hey, yep. there was, I think that's a great video. <laughs> it. I mean, I use it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I show it to all my guys and, it, and it's kind of a little, it's kind of a little corny, but it really paints a visual of what the dog is, is processing and what he's, he, he's living through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was able to tell that the two kids walked down through there and spit gum out. And, you know, that's one of the things that drew me into hunting is the very first time I was out with hounds and we were walking through the woods and I've, I've hunted my whole life and we walk down to the end of this hollow and we start up on the side of the ridge and the dogs just explode. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm asking the guy that I'm with, Hey, and he's like, Oh, well, that's where the, this is where the bear went and yada, yada, yada. And that's one thing that is always, even sometimes when I'm out and my dogs start trailing, like knowing this dog is, is telling me a story. It looks like leaves and dirt and grass and rocks to me. Mm-hmm. And this dog is picking up an odor and telling me where this animal traveled. And the more I get to know my dog, I can tell you, you know, I'm, you can gauge, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. You know, we can gauge like, okay, you know, that animal's through here a couple hours ago, or maybe that was a last night feed track. You know, without that dog telling the story, we wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's one of the things that really drew me into the hound world is um the dog and the dog painting that picture for for me uh, mm-hmm. i just thought it was i just thought it was awesome and like i said you know 27 years later here i sit but <laughs> you know that's what grabbed me and that's what that's what i was thinking at the time is okay there's a, there's been a bear through here and i i had no clue i would have never known if that dog wasn't there barking and um, that's kind of how I've seen it. All right. So let's talk about, mm-hmm. all right, let's tell us, all right. Enlighten us here on the neuroscience <laughs> and, and how us, how the dog processes odor, the things that he uses and what maybe we can do to enhance that. And I know that's a long one, but <laughs> the floor is sure. yours. Um, so just real quick, my, my background, um, I, my undergraduate, uh, research advisor was really interested in, on the olfactory bulb of rats and mice. So a lot of my undergraduate research centered on olfaction. And um, I tied it into a lot of like um, mental processes because of the the neuroscience. Um, So, but what's nice is what's applicable in rats and mice is also applicable in humans and dogs. there are differences in sizes of things. You know, dogs have way more scent receptors than humans and they have a bigger olfactory bulb, but we generally have the same parts. Um, So you can, 
for the most part, interchangeably talk about the different parts of, of the nose and, and the brain um, between mice and rats and humans and dogs and, and study different organisms and, and know how they all work for the most part. Um, don't take that as a blanket statement. I'm, I'm not, I don't, I haven't studied every organism extensively, um, but I think what I'm about to say um, is, is a pretty good uh, overview. So I think just, you know, science is fun to talk about and interesting to understand, but I think what's important is how can we apply what we know about the anatomy and physiology and neurophysiology of odor, olfaction, and uh, the nose and make that work for us in training dogs. Um, so I think when we first talk about the anatomy of the dog's nose, um, you look at their nostrils and they have two little slits on the outside of their nostrils and their noses don't work the same as ours do. So when they breathe in, the air goes through the, the main, the larger part um, that's more towards the center of their nostril um, as they're breathing in. Just about simultaneously, they can also be breathing out um, of those two little slits on the sides of their nose. Mm -hmm. And the odor that, or the air that's coming out actually swirls and will help swirl up odors that are on the ground that will then be sucked in as they're breathing in. So um, just, you know, that, that real simple anatomy of their nose helps them smell better and interact with the odors in their environment better. Um, things that I think would be important to take home is um, the moisture in their nose and inside their nasal cavity um, helps the odor molecules stick to it and that and thus bind with the scent receptors in the dog's nose. So if you're hunting in a really dry environment, um, if your dog has been without water for a long time, um, a lot of times they, they're not interested in drinking. Um, but what I'll do is I'll take some water in my hand and just kind of almost shove it up their nose. You're not going to drown them. You know, I'm not like pouring a gallon of water up their nose, but, you know, just a little pool of water in my hand and I'll kind of splash it in their nose up, you know, and press it up against their nose to try and get them to kind of inhale a little bit of that, that water, um, and keep, keep the, the nasal epithelium, the skin inside their nose moist, um, and we you see know, our dogs a lot of times, if you pay attention, you see your dogs licking their nose constantly, especially mm -hmm. when they're trailing. Yep. And so then moving into um, the interior of their nose, um, that also comes into play. So the inside of their nose is kind of generally separated into three chambers. Um, there's the chamber where the air they're breathing goes. So that goes down into their lungs. Um, there's the vomeronasal organ or the Jacobs, uh, Jacobson's organ, um, might be Jacobs. I know it's vomeronasal. Um, uh, so that's kind of like on the roof of their mouth. Um, and a lot of times when you see dogs like licking something and chattering or licking their nose, um, that actually allows them to, to basically taste the odor, um, it's not known exactly what odors are processed by that. Um, they're pretty sure it's like pheromones and non-airborne odors. Um, but it could also be related to uh, the animals that they're tracking. So if they're tracking bears or raccoons. They can actually smell or process the um, non-airborne chemicals that are left behind with the, the animal scent. 
Um, and then above all, above the vomeronasal organ and the respiratory chamber is um, the, the, the scent receptor chamber, essentially, where, where the air goes and binds with scent receptors, nasal epithelium, and that is where the information is sent to their brain. Um, so, you know, keeping that air moist um, is going to help them potentially taste different chemicals in, in that's left behind by the animals and then also allow them to smell it um, and bind with the scent receptors. Um, then beyond that, I think this is just an interesting kind of tidbit that we can talk into how it, it plays into training. Um, olfactory information, uh, so our uh, smell information is the only sense that doesn't go through the thalamus. So if you think of your brain as, um, you know, a bunch of different airports, let's say, and um, the plane takes off and instead of having to stop in the thalamus, which would be kind of the, you know, a, a, a layover, um, it goes, it's a one way straight to uh, the part of the brain that processes um, memory and emotional information. So um, I know it, it, it's really big for me. I don't know. I think other people experience this as well, but I can smell something. Um, there's some smell that whenever I smell it, I, I think of preschool. And I can't tell you anything else about preschool, but there's some food smell that I'll smell every now and again, and it'll bring me right back there. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because... Yep. Our, uh, our scent information is, is the one sense that doesn't have to kind of stop over and be routed elsewhere. It goes direct to the, the parts of our brain that are associated with memory, emotion, spatial processing. Um, so when dogs create associations with odor, it's a lot more instant than the other things that we teach them. Um, so I, I think when, when I'm thinking about that, uh, I think when I create associations with odors, if I introduce a puppy to um, maybe a, a live coon too young and it smells that raccoon and it has a bad experience with it um, going after, or you were talking about sometimes um, letting young dogs loose on, on bears, mm -hmm. um, not only does it could it have a bad experience with the animal itself, but all of the, the scent information that it has gather, gathered about that animal can be very strongly associated, associated with a bad emotional response. Is that, am I explaining that clearly enough? I'm trying yes, not to be too sciencey. <laughs> no. So you're basically, you're saying that, um, and we all know, I mean, we all have, we all know that we walk in or smell something that takes us back to our childhood or takes us back, you know, into our granny's kitchen. Um, or we have all these vivid memories. And when you smell something, it's all like an instant. It's, it's, it's instant. It's mm -hmm. like, Oh wow. I feel like I'm right back, you know, in my grand, my, my grandma's kitchen. I mean, mm -hmm. so what you're telling the, telling us is that through scent, there is no process. It goes in and it, it automatically links to your, your memory, your emotions, and so forth, correct? Yeah, um, so there's always going to be processing right. going yeah, on, yeah, but yeah. It's, a, it's a much more direct uh, linkage versus, you know, having to be routed through 
the thalamus and kind of stopping off and, and taking a break there. And, and you said something earlier that I wanted to go back and, and touch on. Mm-hmm. You was talking about the dogs chattering their teeth. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen it. You know, the dogs are, you know, they're, they'll take in, they'll take their teeth and, you know, and you're saying that they're that away, what they're doing is they're literally tasting the odor. Yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you're familiar with horses. Yes. <laughs> um, or uh, cows do it where they, they like lift their top lip up really high and kind of wiggle it in the air. Mm-hmm. Um, that's They actually have a more pronounced response, um, whereas the dogs will kind of lick and chatter. They don't tend to do the, the big wiggly nose thing that horses do. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, that's all very interesting, and we all talk, we'll, we'll, I know we're going to get to this talking about positive experiences with younger dogs and how it affects them throughout their their training and, and whether they're productive or not. But tell us what is so interesting about the, the, um, the scent receptors as the dog goes from puppy to adulthood. What do they do that most people may not know? Sure. Um, so... The scent receptors that an animal is born with are not the same ones that it dies with. So they regenerate over the course of an animal's life. Um, you know, how long the receptor, quote unquote, lives for uh, varies. But you will, I say you, an animal will have different scent receptors and the uh, distribution of those receptors will change throughout their lives. So one scent receptor is coded for one odorant. Um, so where I think this is uh, something that we can use is um, early life exposure to certain odors can cause an animal to have more of those scent receptors. And then um, continual exposure throughout the animal's life can help maintain the number of those receptors. Um, now, it's important to know that you can't just bask, uh, you know, the animal's cage in odor because there is something called habituation um, where the the body will actually downregulate the number. So, like, if, <clears throat> I had a professor explain to me as, like, you're putting a bunch of buckets out. If you're trying to collect rain and it's not raining very much, you need a lot of buckets to get the same amount of rain as if it was pouring and you only put one bucket out. So the body will change the number of buckets if it's if it's always saturated with odor. Mm-hmm. But what I think is important is to um, have positive associations with an odor. So, um, you know, as puppies, you can let them smell the odor before you give them their food. Um, you can have a scented piece of hide that they play with and, and it's associated with a fun game. Um, you know, I don't, I wouldn't just give them a piece of hide to, to sleep on for months at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, I haven't, I haven't read all the research on this topic, but um, I know I have a book actually called Canine Olfaction Science and Law. And there's some studies in there that talk about um, odor pre-exposure in detection dogs. And they found that the ones that were just allowed to smell the odor and not have any association really didn't train up any easier. But the ones that had um, smelled the odor and were given food and smelled the odor and were given food 
actually learn the odor in a, a detection context faster. So, um, you know, practically how I would apply this would be, um, I have a bowl for my puppies. It's, it's um, one of those bowls where it's got kind of the trough around the outside and, and like a, a metal post mm -hmm. in, in the middle. middle. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I've drilled holes in that post and I put the odor underneath. Um, and I let them walk up to the bowl and smell the bowl and then I pour their food in it. So they start to learn. I smell the odor. I get the food. I'm not asking them to do anything. I'm just trying to create that association and kind of generate that predisposition to have more scent receptors for the thing I want them to smell. And there's something I'll, I'll pause in case you have any questions, but there's actually something even more interesting, I think, that. Um, having to do with the, the parents um, and nope, how that affects. You go ahead. I've got a question, but <laughs> okay. I can follow up when you're done. This is pretty quick. Um, <laughs> so there's something something called epigenetics, um, and basically it's uh, how environmental exposure can turn genes on and off. And they've done research in rodents and found they expose the, um, the parent rodents to an odor and basically create a startle effect to that odor. And then not just their offspring, but their offspring's offspring. So two generations removed. So they'd be their grandpups. Will, mm -hmm. Yep. Will still startle when they smell this odor, even though they've had no exposure to it. And they've done it with like in vitro. So the, the mouse offspring weren't even around the parents, so they can't say it was a learned behavior. So if you have really good bear dogs and they have puppies it's likely that their puppies will be more genetically programmed to hunt bear just because their parents did it, even without doing any sort of odor pre-exposure. Now, it's not been proven in detection dogs as far as I know, but it has been shown in rodents and there's other epigenetic mechanisms that have been proven in humans and um, dogs and, and other organisms. So it, I think it's, I feel like, I would be confident to say, yeah, I, I think if I wanted good bear dogs, I would seek out puppies from dogs that are already good at, at hunting bears. Um, just because it's, it's probably likely that those puppies are going to have, you know, some more scent receptors or some deep uh, association between a scent and their behavior that will make them you know, give them a slight edge. I'm not saying they're going to be a shoe in, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, given two equal puppies, they would probably have a slight advantage. So that it would up your, it would, it would up your chances of having a, a, a it would make your chances better in picking out of a litter that they're, and we all know that, you know, you want to, you want to breed a bear dog to a bear dog, but so, but, and so you're saying that, okay, so, um, we just bred, we bred Fancy and, and Spook, and we have our pups out here. They're 14 weeks old, and both of them run bear, and both of them tree their own bear. Um, Fancy's weaknesses, Spook complements, and his weaknesses, she complements, and that was kind of our thought process. So you're saying that this litter of puppies, these six pups that we have, um, my chances are better of getting a bear dog because of their parents. And even though that she wasn't, um, she wasn't, well, she was, she was actually hunted during her pregnancy. 
So is that going to make a difference in it? I, I would say now, obviously, I, nothing can be said with any certainty because I have not studied it. And, you know, I, I don't know of research that exists, mm -hmm. but based upon my understanding of epigenetics, uh, I would say the puppies have a higher chance of having an affinity for bear odor. And I think that would be something that would be interesting to test, um, you know, someone that has numerous litters and maybe has dogs that they're breeding for one purpose or another, um, you know, you can see puppies affinity for different odors that they've never smelled before. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, the mothers, so <laughs> puppies get 50% of their genetic material from their father and 50% from their mother. But being in the mother's womb, and her experiencing different things while she uh, is carrying those puppies, different nutrition, different experiences, different stressors, has a greater effect on those puppies because there's the epigenetic influence that goes beyond just their concrete DNA genetics. Right. So hopefully, so, hopefully I said that nope, <laughs> in no, a way that made sense. <laughs> no, I completely get it. And you're saying that if, if fancy... Um, I don't know. What what could we use? So Fancy gets startled by, um, I don't know. Let's say she runs out into a barn lot one night or one day while she's hunting and two or three horses come around the barn and startle her. That odor would carry on to her pups. I would say it, it would be more possible in her puppies than had she not had that experience. Now, you may have rock star puppies that just aren't startled by anything, but there is a chance that that association. And again, like one trial learning, if she only experienced that one time, is that enough to create, to flip that epigenetic switch? Mm -hmm. But say throughout her pregnancy, she was repeatedly exposed to something that was stressing her and you know, like for with the mice, for instance, they, I don't remember the names of the odors, but they expose them to this odor and then shock them and expose them to the odor and shock them. Um, so they had repeated instances of having a bad experience related to a particular odor. Mm -hmm. um, and then their offspring showed that same starter response to the odor that the parents had been shocked by. So I, I certainly don't want to put it out there like, Oh yeah. You know, if, if your mm. dog has one bad experience with something, it's puppies are going to be afraid of that forever. Um, it's more of a consideration of, you know, if you've got your female in a, a whelping room and, uh, and she's, you know, constantly hearing a noise that's, that's startling her or, you know, there's there's a smell leaking into that room that is is making her uncomfortable. You may see a response in those puppies to that same smell, mm -hmm. um, or that same noise. Yeah, that's just I mean, because. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was gonna say that's very interesting, and I mean that's again it goes back to you know knowing your dogs and and knowing their behavior, and then you you see that in the the parent, and then okay, then the one of the one of the pups does it, and then one of the pups puzzle and you're like, Oh yeah, that come. And I can, I can actually, I see genetic things through the dogs that I have bred, um, in the line that I have bred for 
for years, which I, I got from Lance Hutton, um, some of the dogs do not take good to heat. And I have one here. He's a, he, he, he'll turn eight in July and his mother, his mother's mother and her mother all would in, in the early season, like August, September or early August when it's hot. I mean, I couldn't hardly get anything out of her and mm-hmm. she'd lay down in mud puddles. I mean, if a bear crossed the road and she could get to water, she'd get to water and lay in it. Um, I didn't have that problem in December and it took me three generations to say like, Oh, wait a second. Racket done this. Abby done this. Little man's doing like, like I see mm-hmm. that trait. It's kind of what you're saying. I'm just saying it in a different trait, but I, I get yep. completely what you're saying. Oh, and that, you know, it, it spans more than just ol- olfaction related traits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I certainly, I am not a geneticist, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but, um, you know, I, I understand the effects of epigenetics enough to know, you know, there, if you see behaviors in a line, uh, there's a likelihood that those behaviors are something that, you know, especially if the, the puppies were raised by different people or raised in different ways, um, that you can say, well, you know what, that, that heat intolerance is something that that line is carrying, um, and, you know, trying to do your best to identify not just physical characteristics, but also behavioral characteristics that you can read for. Yeah. I know we're going a little off topic, yep. but yeah. I think it's no, still relevant. It, it's still good. It's all good. All right. So talk to us a little bit about the nose. Um, I know that the size of the nose matters. And mm-hmm. why can you take two of the same dogs two walker dogs, blue ticks, black, I don't care what it is, black and tans, chihuahua, I don't care. How can you take two dogs out of the same litter and one of them has a desire to get down in cold trail and the other one does not have the desire? If they still, yep. if they all have the same receptors and and everything's working. So talk to us a little bit about the nose and, and a, a theory on that. Okay. Well, you know, Obviously, you can look at uh, a hound versus a bulldog, um, and I'm talking about you know an English bulldog, a brachiocephalic mm-hmm. dog that has the smushed face, mm-hmm. and one is just better equipped genetically to do scent-related tasks. Um, you know, a bigger nose, a wider nose, a longer nose, um, more surface area is going to allow that dog to take in more scent information and process it better. Um, It's going to spend a longer time inside the nasal passage, interacting with more scent receptors. So, you know, if I'm choosing a dog for a scent-related task, um, I'm going to lean towards a dog that has a muzzle and a nose that's shaped better for what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that said that doesn't mean that the dog is going to have the drive to do the job. So I can do everything right. Um, You know, I can pick a dog from uh, two parents that were hunting dogs and I can do scent exercises. I can pair odor with their food. I can have them searching for their food on the ground to to build that desire to use their nose and and hunt for something. Um, But if the dog just doesn't want to do the work, 
um, they're not, they're going to take the easy route. You know, maybe if the animal is, you know, the, a huge odor pool, uh, and the, you know, it's a hot track and there's just so much odor that it's easy for the dog. They might, they might show the drive for it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much to hounds because like I said, I'm still new with that, but, um, you know, I've seen plenty of detection dogs that if you put uh, a large odor source, that's easy for the dog to pinpoint, they don't have to work too hard. They can look decent, but when that odor is, is older, there's less of it. Um, it's a more difficult scent picture for them to process. Um, that dog might just say, eh, you know, it's just really not worth it to me. Whereas the dog that wants to work harder will be able to follow older scent, um, scent in more challenging conditions, um, and will be able to follow that scent for longer distances. Um, so in evaluating, you know, when, when I'm picking puppies, I, I'm generally, you know, if I'm looking at a litter of puppies of the same breed, I'm not usually like sitting there and measuring their noses. Um, I'll throw some kibble on the ground and I'll see which puppies hunt for it the longest. Um, <laughs> that's you know, one of our tests. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean. that to me shows like, do you know how to use your nose and are you willing to stick with it? You know, some puppies will go over and like eat the, the, the easy kibble that are quick to, they, they find quickly and they're easy and then they get distracted by something. And then there's those one or two puppies that, they will find every piece of kibble on the ground. And even after they've found every piece of kibble, they're still hunting in hopes yeah. that they're going to find one. Um, I, I've found that that simple test is a really good indication for me um, of how well a dog is going to use their nose. And then I feed my dogs off the ground a lot or I'll go in my yard and I'll put out like little piles of food and have them actually go out and, <laughs> and search for the food in my yard. Um, just to kind of lock in that behavior from an early age that if you use your nose, you're going to find good stuff um, and just condition them to the way they interact with their environment first is through their nose yep. um, rather than visually. Yeah. And if you Does guys, that answer the question? Yeah. And if you guys look at, um, go to Houndsman XP, the, the group, I posted a picture a couple of days ago, exactly what Ariel's saying. I, I've put out and I put out food, um, on the ground and I had the puppies in a different area. I literally walked in a different direction and I had one, one of the, one of the females literally throwed her head up in the air and went over and found the food. And she seems, and I, when I get going to, when I do my, I'm going to do an update on the pups, so I don't want to give everything away, but Mm -hmm. Um, she went and found it. And when she found it, the whole, the whole pack went and, um, they all worked it for a good while, but I, you're exactly right. I've got some that stay with it longer and some that don't. And I am, I'm, I'm taking notes. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm looking for. <laughs> um, so, and you know, that, that stimulation too. I mean, they're having to work, they're working their nose. It's just like exercise for them. Um, it's, it's a good thing for pups. It's a very good thing for pups. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, so two dogs, same breed, same, the same litter. And one wants to cold trail and one don't. Is mm -hmm. that, is that, 
is that genetics? Is it training? Because I do think we can enhance some of the training if they have the desire. Um, or is it both? So let me ask you this. If you bake a cake and it's a really good cake, is it the ingredients or is it the chef that baked the cake and, and the way they baked it? If it's If I'm baking it, it's me. <laughs> no, you're it's, taking the credit. <laughs> if, if you if everything lines up right, and then we're getting back yep. to talking about genetics and and how those chromosomes are lining up. Um, so I think it's a matter of you know you, if you have a bunch of crappy ingredients, you're never going to have a good cake. And mm-hmm. if you have a terrible chef, even with the best ingredients, you're never going to have a good cake. So you need. You know, now if you have the best trainer and a dog that just naturally uses its nose, and and um, I think one of the interesting things I, I've learned about odor is they actually smell in stereo, so um, they can tell like if they're getting information from the right nostril or the left nostril which way the scent is coming from. So I like to watch the you know do the puppies learn? Uh, are they just frantically searching, or are they actually like can I see them kind of working that odor directionally and finding the edges of the odor plume. Um, So, you know, I think you want to start with the best genetic specimen, but if you have bad training and, you know, your training is not aligned with what you want to accomplish, you're not going to have the product you want. Now, I, you know, I think, I don't know how much time we have left, but, um, a, a conversation Taylor and I have had is, you know, is the cold nosed dog always the dog you want? And I think, you know, there's instances where you want the cold nosed dog that can work out an older track and, and keeps their nose down. Um, but in some instances, maybe you don't want a dog that's finding day old tracks. Maybe you only want a hot nosed dog that's finding fresher tracks. And I, I think the definition of what's hot and cold, um, varies depending on who I've talked to. Um, but we had this conversation in our group a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, and it's a good topic because I mean, I've got some, some guys that, oh, there's plenty of bear. I don't, I don't need, I don't need a cold nosed dog. Okay. And I agree with that to a certain extent, you know, August and September when we're riding the roads and, you know, we're popping two or three bear a day, you absolutely do not need it. Mm-hmm. But in December, in this December, we were very fortunate, or last December, we were very fortunate. The food, we found a very good a food crop where we were hunting. And again, we were treeing, sometimes we were treeing two and two and three bear a day. Um, I I mean, maybe one day or two days, we did not tree bear out of, out of all the days we hunted. And so... When when the population is good and the food sources are good, yes, I, I can I can say that maybe I don't need it. But for me personally, I want my dog to take a track as it comes, and mm-hmm. what that means is, you know, if I'm on foot and I'm you know I'm putting in the the, the boot leather, you know, and my dog comes across the track, I would prefer him to go ahead, him or her, whichever, you know, whatever dog it is to go ahead and, 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 and work that track out. Because Mm -hmm. to me, that is one of the, 
again, back back way back when when I started, you know, I hunted with an old dog named Homer that Lance had, and Homer is kind of the foundation of some of the dogs that I still have. You know, uh, Homer, man, just not. I mean, we just don't have. I I haven't hunted with a dog like that in years, and that's that's kind of like the uh, what it's about to me. Yes, it's fun mm-hmm. to dump dogs on hot tracks and run and. You know, your dogs, you're walking walking out the ridge top and your dogs throw their head in the air and the next thing you know, they're 200 yards over the ridge, you know, and they're just driving a track. That, yeah, I love it. But sometimes in December, it's it's hard. It's slim pickings. So mm-hmm. I do think you're right. I do think that it's personal preference. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's it depends on the area you hunt, the, the type of terrain you hunt, and how you hunt. So... I know for me, I, I like to watch a dog. I, I just think it's beautiful when, you, you know, you can almost see them kind of squinting and just taking in, like you said, the, the picture that's on the ground. Um, you know, it's exciting to, and I, I think about the human tracking dogs I've trained. Um, I think it's also good information when you've got a dog that will work nose down and then you see them pick their head up and their body language change you know, you're getting closer. Uh, you know, this is when you're on the end of a, a leash with a dog, but, um, you know, I made a lot of mistakes with my first tracking dog who actually turned into a phenomenal tracker, but, um, you know, talking about what makes a hot versus cold nose dog. Uh, I started off training her by doing runaways and letting her get, you know, her drive, her prey drive stimulated and watching people run away. And, she was a great hot tracker. She could run down a trail and, you know, hit, hit a big pool of odor. That track went across a field, uh, you know, a low cut field or was aged too long. She couldn't do it. And I had to back up and retrain her. And she went from being a dog that couldn't follow an older track. And you would say like, yeah, she's, she's not a good cold tracking dog to, a dog that was great at it because I adjusted my training method. So I think to relate that to, to hounds, um, you know, I think if you're only running hot tracks, uh, mm-hmm. you're going to develop a dog that doesn't know how to put its nose down and work the ground scent and, and scent changes. Um, mm-hmm. There's a great book. Uh, a, it's not a very long book. It's called scent and the scenting dog by William Syretuff. Yep. And he talks about how the scent picture changes over time. And it's talking about humans, but I have to imagine it, it coincides with what happens with animal odor, where the odor in the air from a fresh uh target odor you know from a fresh animal being in that that area is different than the odor that remains on the ground after they've walked through and and the ground odor changes whether it's an hour or six hours or 12 hours um so you really you can't train a dog on one piece of that picture and expect it to be good at all of them some are some are just naturally good at understanding how to use their nose in different contexts but i think you know, ex- allowing them to, to learn and to, to run behind experienced dogs and, and learn how to read and, and view the scent picture at different times helps develop the dog to the extent that their genetics will allow. Yeah, no, and I, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, if you're just, and, and I'll take the police canine, I mean, due, due to training, time constraints, and the, the amount of dogs that, that I have in the group, uh, we, we typically don't run over an hour long track. Uh, 
Um, that's kind of our setup. That's our certification. And if we're working, I mean, we're usually on scene, you know, 15 or 20 minutes at the most. Uh, we do have one dog, the Hanno Hound, the Hanoverian Hound, that now mm-hmm. he'll run older tracks. But our dogs will do the same things his will, but we just don't practice it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't, they can't call me on a missing, missing, you know, kid six hours later. Like I, when they call me and give me that call, I'm going to go, yeah, I mean, I can come out and try it, but we need to call this person first because this mm-hmm. is, this is what they do. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, you know, a, a good analogy. And I think that every houndsman knows that, that, you know, if you're running hot tracks 99% of the time, then your dog's are going to run hot tracks because they they're they're catching it's exciting it's fun for them um and if if you're not running the old tracks and having some failures in there you know the dog's probably not going to be interested and and vice versa so Mm -hmm. so is there anything else with the neuroscience the nose of the dog that is relevant to us will help help us become better houndsmen um anything that you can think of I would say, um, just kind of as an, a, a general observation, um, you know, when, when you're talking about a dog following odor, I think sometimes we expect like the dog should just take off in a beeline in the right direction. Um, you know, we saw that bear run. Why isn't the dog following its track exactly? Um, you know, the, the things I've explained about how the nose works and how they're getting different odor information through each nostril and, you know, they kind of want to find the edges of the, the scent plume. So, like, mm. I grew up in Italian in an Italian family, and they we're always cooking with garlic. So you'd walk in the house, and the whole house would smell like garlic. And, you know, imagine the dog is dumped out on a hot track, and the, you know, the whole area around the truck smells like a bear. Sometimes they might have to go off in the wrong direction to find kind of where that odor plume, where the edge is. Mm. And then they can say, okay... I'm out of the odor. Let me get back in it. Um, so maybe just like managing our expectations for the dogs, understanding that they're seeing so much information through their nose. And, you know, as long as the dog is working and you can see them processing the information and, and, and trying to, to work that odor, you have to let them learn and experience the world in order to, to know how to say like oh I smelled a little stronger out of this nostril so that means that the track went this way and they're going to make mistakes um they're you know that they're going to make mistakes or they're going to go the wrong way in order to learn how to follow the track and and go the right way so I know that's pretty general but I think kind of my takeaway from it is you know that their nose is so complex that we have to do our best to facilitate them using it um and give them good experiences and then kind of stay out of their way and, and let them learn. Yeah. Well, I, I like, you know, to sum this up, I really like that, you know, with, with the younger dogs, we want a positive association and you and I both know through our, our other types of training that um, how much, how important that is in the development of the dog. Uh, so if you can find that odor and associate it, and that was another question I was going to get back to you and I won't ask you no more. Mm-hmm. So if I'm using food to do my recall on my, on my, mm-hmm. my, um, tone and I'm using food to do 
the, the, the association, you put the odor out, the dog smells it, you drop food in. What, what would you say to somebody that says, okay, we're using food for everything. So, you know, how is this not affecting them? Like, um, are we overdoing the food? Well, I'm, my answer to that is the dog has to eat. So uh, I use meal times as training exercises. Um, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want to overfeed them. I don't want them to be dependent on, you know, always getting extra treats for stuff. But if they're going to eat anyway, I can go throw their, you know, one or two cups of kibble out in the yard and let them search for it. I can put the bowl down and let them run over to the bowl with the odor in it and, and dump their food in it. And it's, it's not, you know, they're going to eat anyway. Um, they're making associations whether we want them to or not. So why not facilitate the associations we want them to make? Um, you know, I mean, I'm going to be feeding them out of something. Why not feed them out of a bowl that sometimes has the, the odor in it that I want them to find or, you know, let them eat off the ground and let them practice searching. That's, that's probably one of the things I do the most is just, yep. and also it's, it's easy to do when I have to get ready for work and I can set up a, a pen and, and sprinkle some kibble on the ground and put the puppy in there and they can have a little training session, Fishing. quote unquote, mm-hmm. while I'm, while I'm doing something else. So, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are averse to like, Oh, I don't always want to have to be giving the dog treats and food. No. Well, you feed your dog. That's right. So, you know, I mean, if you're going to feed them, they're, they're, they're learning something when you feed them, whether it's, you know, the, the sound of the scoop scooping up their food bowl into the bowl or you walking to the, the kennel. I actually was listening to another one of the Houndsman XP pod- podcasts with George uh, Perryman. Mm-hmm. And he, he would say, he said he would honk the horn and then feed his dogs yep. to teach them to come back to the the sound of the, the horn yeah. in the woods. So, yep. yep. I yeah. mean, all of those are just great ways to. And it to doesn't take that feeding. much time. Like, you know, 15 minutes a day. I mean, once you figure out what you're doing and, um, you know, to back up, to, to reiterate what you just said, the dog's got to have three things to survive. Food, air, and water. And if you're taking that food, and that's what I never, I don't give my dogs treats. Um, I use the food. The food's what I use in the context, mm-hmm. like what we're, and I use it in a lot of different contexts too. I mean, um, I literally uh, trained my shepherd. Um, I did, I, his reward was food reward on on detection. Mm-hmm. I used Dave Croyer's method. And it was a, it was a kind of an experimental thing for me. And I could literally put food in three other boxes and put the odor in one box and he would go to the odor. And the guys yep. that were with me were like, I don't, I don't get it. You're feeding him food. I'm like, <laughs> food don't mean nothing without odor. Yep. The they, odor- they learned that that association has to be there in order for the food to be available. Yep. Yeah. And so, no, you can't. And I, and I was being a devil's advocate there. You can't you can't overdo it. I don't think, like I said, I don't do it as treats. I know you don't do it as treats. It's it's got a purpose behind it. And, you know, I can I can use the food a lot through that dog's life and through the training. And um, like I said, dogs, most most hounds, especially are 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 
food addicts anyway, and you can pretty much get them to do anything you want with food. So mm-hmm. that's a good way to use it. <laughs> it's it's super handy. Yep. All right, Errol, before we wrap this up, is there anything you got you want to add, take away, um, add, you know, anything you want to say? No, I mean, I, I think we covered a lot tonight. You know, I, I love that you've given me the opportunity to talk about some of the, the nerdy stuff. And I hope I made it palatable um, and, you know, didn't, didn't get too overly scientific, but uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. I, I would love to answer any questions if questions come up in, in any of the Facebook groups. It's yeah, super so interesting. I'm, I'm glad you, we got to talk about this. Would you mind if, so you're on Facebook under your name, uh, which mm-hmm. your, her name will be in the show notes. Is it okay if people would contact you if they have questions? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm, I love talking about dogs and, <laughs> um, you know, it might take, take me a little while to get back just cause I'm not always great about answering my messages, but, uh, I'm, I'm really interested in olfaction detection and, and learning more about hound hunting. And certainly I'd love if people want to share their knowledge and experiences with me, cause I am still learning very yeah. much so. Well, I think we all are. I mean, again, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a process and it's a journey. I mean, we're, I'm nowhere near the end of mine. I want to, I want to continue to learn and, you know, have better, better dogs and breed better dogs. And, um, yeah, so no, but well, I can't thank you enough for taking, you know, taking the time that you have to talk to us and share your knowledge because, um, it's very extensive in the, in the dog world with the stuff that you've done, that you've been associated with the places that you've worked. Uh, and I know some of our listeners don't, they don't know who Jerry Bradshaw is and who Mike Settle is and, you know, Cameron, you know, Cameron Ford and all the places that you've been and and the things that you've done. But me coming from that world where, you know, these guys names are always at the top. Um, you know, I value your, your knowledge and I hope the listeners value it. And again, we thank you for coming on and, and sharing that with us. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity and I appreciate you always being willing to share your knowledge with me. Yep. All right, Ariel. So I'm thankful and glad that you have helped us find a way to teach, train, or learn.